0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 10 is our scripture this morning. Luke chapter 10, the 70 sent out. This is episode 7 in the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus. Episode 7, the service of the 70, or otherwise known as the service of the 72 as we identified a text variant in the manuscripts. And uh, the question that's still up for debate is whether there were 70 or 72 of these disciples that were called two by two. In any event, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each one of us is in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Mighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessings that you pour forth upon us day by day. Most especially, Father, for the every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And Father, the, uh, the earthly blessings are simply grace upon grace. Uh, we see them. Uh, they are bestowed. They are withheld. But Father, the earthly circumstances uh, pale in comparison to our eternal state. And I pray as we study these uh, principles from this passage here today that we would come to rejoice, not that the uh, the demons are subject to us in your name, but that our names are recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I pray that the uh, the blessing from this message might fill our hearts and motivate us as we move forward. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right. this uh, We have five points in our overall outline. We'll just pick up for where we... Left it a week ago. Reading from Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others. Others, that is beyond the 12. The 12, by the way, are fairly recent in the Gospel of Luke. Sometimes we lose sight of it because we're bouncing back and forth between all the, the Gospel accounts, but you'll notice how chapter 9 actually begins. He called the 12 uh gave them power and authority over all demons to heal diseases. He sent them out proclaiming the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Well, now in chapter 10, he appointed 70 others. And so these would be beyond the 12, either 70 or 72, depending on which manuscripts you choose to read. And he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I asked you this question last week because this verse gets quoted a lot in uh, our day and age. It gets quoted a lot for a church-age application that um, our, uh, our imperative is to go, as we see in verse 3, go. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And these passages are often looked upon as directly applicable in terms of a primary application for the dispensation of the church. And I asked you last week to put some thought into that, give it some prayer, give it some meditation, consider the context. Is it fair to say in our stewardship, in our dispensation, given that we are in the, uh, in the end times where difficult days will come, uh, is it fair to say the harvest is plentiful? Are we living in... The dispensation, the stewardship of the full harvest is the dispensation of the church, the stewardship of God on earth in which the harvest metaphor is applied. And uh, we'll have some more to follow up on that when uh, we uh, continue in some of these issues here today because we're going to see how utterly Jewish this context is in not only the day and age in which Jesus was speaking but also in the day and age to which Jesus is referring when he is proclaiming the kingdom and the imminency of the kingdom we're going to find that much in this chapter is actually tribulational in its application and will be millennial in its fulfillment so that uh, just keep that in mind and leave it as an open question as we proceed through these verses. Uh, so beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, greet no one on the way. The aspect of greeting, again, is an Old Testament context. Now, as we run through the points, the first observation we made was that this was similar to the sending of the twelve. In a similar fashion as the twelve. The seventy or the seventy-two are sent out two by two. And if you compare this back to chapter nine, you see the similarities there. You bring in the the parallel detail from Mark 6, 7. And you realize that when the twelve were sent out, they were sent out in six pairs. That the twelve disciples were broken down into six pairings. Uh, Who ended up with Judas Iscariot? All right, that's a good question for you all right simon the zealot by the way i don't want to leave a question hanging so now the 70 or the 72 are also sent out in pairs either 35 pairs or 36 pairings i think 72 is the more accurate uh possibility here but in any event if you want to compare this to your notes of what you took back in Galilean ministry episode 34 that's where you'll find this study the 12 sent out was Galilean Ministry episode 34 but there were a lot of similarities here examples uh, the money belt the bag the uh the greeting of peace the um shaking the dust off your feet, all of these are pretty similar to the instructions that the, uh, that the twelve received. Although, one huge difference, I think, that the disciples, the twelve, were sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's indicators in this passage that their ministry would even be in Gentile context as well. We looked at some text criticism issues. I'll pass by those. The manuscripts that uh, read 72 rather than 70. And what did their mission entail? Well, their mission begins with a full harvest identification and fervent prayer. Verse 2, the harvest is plentiful. Now, this is in the Father's viewpoint. This is in the Father's viewpoint as revealed to his son and in his prophetic office that this is the moment in which positive volition will be exercised to uh, a gospel message, to gospel hearing. We don't uh, have such prophetic announcements today. Uh, there's no booming voice out of heaven that tells you uh, that, uh, you know, this place or this city is ripe for the gospel. And uh, we, we preach the gospel message, whether it's received, whether it's rejected, whether. Uh, and we don't know what the response is going to be ahead of time. The father does, but we don't here, though they're being advised that in the father's foreknowledge this harvest is plentiful that the fields are ripe that is they are ready to be uh, to be reaped and uh, sometimes we as we uh, as we minister the gospel we don't know until after the fact oftentimes whether we're going to reap a harvest or whether we're just sowing additional seeds that somebody else is going to reap down the road here they're being told however that uh, the harvest is uh, about to be reaped. Is the Lord of the harvest, not the Lord of the seed sowing. The Lord of the harvest is sending out labors into his harvest, that they're about to reap the harvest. So that's the context. The full harvest identification and fervent prayer. Their mission recognized angelic conflict difficulties. This is the lambs in the midst of wolves. That uh, the adversary clearly does not want uh, the, the kingdom advanced. He does not want the gospel to be proclaimed. And so uh, whenever there is a fruitful opportunity for ministry, the adversary is going to be at work. Uh, you look at the parable of the sower. The, the seed is sown by the roadside, and the birds are right there to snatch up the, uh, to snatch up the seed. That's the way that functions. See, the birds are the... Uh, creatures of the air, and we know who the prince of the power of the air is. Birds are often indicative of angelic beings, uh, particularly fallen angelic beings in, uh, in these particular metaphors. Uh, their mission also relies on grace, hospitality, support. The mission of the 72, reading from Luke 10, verses 4 through 7, their mission relied on grace, hospitality, support. As far as where they're going to stay, what they're going to eat, how they're going to be supported, it was going to be grace hospitality all the way. Well, it's quite a contrast from the priests and the Levites. Remember, in this particular stewardship, the spiritual service was vested in the priesthood, the descendants of Aaron and the Levitical assistants in that. And the annual tithing went to support the temple, the ministry of the priests and the Levites in the temple. Well, Jesus doesn't have any claim to that. He doesn't draw on any of those funds. He certainly can't send out disciples and make use of temple funds for what they're doing. Uh, They're going to be going forth on a grace basis. And it's a wonderful picture of grace even under the stewardship of law. But a neat preview for these guys, many of whom are going to cross over to become church age saints as soon as, uh, of course, the uh, change of dispensation takes place here about six months from this chapter here on the day of pentecost so all the issues on grace in terms of uh, uh, the peace uh, greeting the peace response the uh, eating and drinking what they give you the laborer is worthy of his wages this by the way is cited by paul um, and then quoted by peter with reference to paul and uh, it's, a, it's an interesting verse that we look at when we examine principles of Bibliology and the, uh, the inspiration of Scripture. This is one passage that we look to in, uh, in those kind of studies. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. A lot of these guys could be going into Gentile cities, and they may be eating things they've never eaten uh, prior to this point of time. They may not have eaten some of these things. If they're devout, like Peter describes in Acts 10, then a lot of the Gentile diet would have been alien, foreign to them. And yet Christ is trying to get them to relax in terms of their dietary liberty. That's point E. Their mission featured grace, dietary liberty. And uh, so many of these things are taking place in the dispensation of Israel, yet we're seeing a bit of a foreshadowing there, not only of the church age in which we operate, but to be honest with you, it's a huge foreshadowing of what the tribulation is going to be about because the the majority of world missions in the tribulational age are going to be Jewish evangelists. They're going to be the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are going to be proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Christ in anticipation of Armageddon. And uh, much of their mission field is going to be in the Gentile nations of this earth, uh, so much so that we're told the uh, every tongue, tribe, uh, people, and nation, and so forth, too many to be counted. That uh, will be harvested during that age. we often think about the tribulation as the age of maximum divine wrath. And it is. It's also the age of maximum uh, evangelism uh, harvest right there. So that's something to consider as we evaluate the harvest terminology here from verse 2. Their mission also featured kingdom signs and wonders. Kingdom signs and wonders from verse 9. Um, this, likewise, is going to be a feature of the tribulation as the adversary will counterfeit the signs and wonders and, and try to uh, provoke um, deception in the tribulational age. Finally, their mission features a mixed acceptance and rejection. There will be some cities that receive them. There will be some cities where ministry can take place. Think about Nineveh when Jonah was sent to them and they listened to the prophet and they repented and there was fruitfulness there and the city of Nineveh was uh, uh, preserved for an additional 150 years beyond the point where the first uh, message of divine discipline was pronounced upon them. Uh, others would be like uh, Nahum. Nahum sent to Nineveh 150 years after Jonah, and in the ministry of Nahum, uh, they did not repent and they were destroyed, according to the book of Nahum. So, what makes the difference between a Jonah and a Nahum? What makes the difference in the in the two circumstances? The same city, separated by you know, like I said, 150 years or so, but um, and the father knows before he even sends his messengers. Whether they're going to respond positively, like in the case of Jonah, or they're going to respond negatively, as in the case of, of Nahum. So what's the point in sending these messengers if the Father knows how they're going to respond anyway? See, this is what we have to work through when we balance sovereignty on the one hand and foreknowledge with volition on the other hand and the accountability that goes with that. We'll address that here today. All right, moving on then to verses 13 and following, 13 through 15, or 13 through 16. We have woe messages. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And so point two in our outline, the 72 are to deliver the Lord's woe messages. Now, he's previously given this class a number of times on uh, uh, the woes pronounced to Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum. And now they get to deliver the woe messages. The 72 are to deliver the Lord's woe messages, which he first taught his disciples during the Galilean ministry. And so if you have your notes, back to Galilean ministry episode number 21. It was an episode that was titled Woes Upon the Privileged. And uh, we went through uh, considerable detail on that. I would just encourage you. It's on the website. If you want to review the MP3s, you get a lot more than what you're going to get in simply one session here today. But you'll notice that this passage includes a lot of ifs. And that's what I want to highlight with you this morning are the ifs. What do you Chorazin, What do you Bethsaida, for if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which it occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Now, when we break down the ifs in the New Testament, there are four basically, well, three main Conditions and then the fourth one is very rare, but uh, the d- different conditional clauses in the in the way that the Greek language can construct the ifs. And I've learned this from my childhood. I still teach it this way in our Greek classes. Uh, the the first of the classifications are true statements. If and it's true, like when the devil came to Christ and said, "If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread." That was a condition where he knew it to be true, and so he used the first class. Condition if there. The second class knows the condition to not be true, and that's what we have here. These conditions are not true. the The Capernaum miracles or the Chorazin, Bethsaida miracles, they were not done in Tyre and Sidon. These miracles weren't done in those cities. But if they had been done, then those cities would have repented. That's the point. Is what what's being made here? Those miracles weren't done there. Uh, neither were they done in Sodom and Gomorrah. When he says, woe to you, uh, Capernaum, and uh, uh, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. And back in the uh, Matthew parallel to this, Matthew eleven twenty-one through 23, we're told that Sodom would have repented if the Capernaum miracles had been done there. Okay? So this is an if, and it's not true. Then the third class is if, maybe it is, maybe it's not such as if we confess our sins. And maybe we will, maybe we won't. But if we do, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we don't, then he doesn't cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He leaves us in our carnal estate. He leaves us in our defiled circumstance uh, in sin where we need to be confessed to be cleansed. So you have the differences. You You have those first class, second class, third class. First class is true. Second class is false. Third class could be either way. Now, this is a second class. And the thing about second class conditions are they express the ifs and the would ofs. Right? And as such, this is something I think that human beings can relate to because so much of our experience, uh, our negative experiences, our past, our regrets, um, is filled with this exact thing. We, we ponder occasionally the, the would-ifs and the what-ifs, see. And, and the ifs aren't true. But if they had been true, then what might have been the result, see. So think back to whatever, and, and we don't need a show of hands or any kind of, it's not a testimony hour or anything, but just think back to um, something in the past, good, bad, whatever, and ponder the what-if the different choice had been made, see? And then, well, where would you be now? And most of those, as I say, are kind of scary. Uh, A lot of the things in the past, I know that grace was abundant. And I I just rejoice at how faithful the Lord has been and how gracious he's been. And so, a lot of those what-if, alternative universe kind of things would all be in the uh, rejection of grace, which takes you down an ugly path right away. All right. But, you know, what if um, in in my early, late teens, early 20s, when I was bound and determined to become a homicide investigator, you know, what if I had uh, pursued law enforcement to a greater extent than I I ever did? What if uh, I had actually received a criminal justice degree, see, at the university? What if, uh, you know, the Army had sent me to Fort Lewis instead of Fort Hood? then I would have never come to Texas. Because, trust me, I didn't want to come to Texas. <laughs> I had met three Texans in my life, and two of them made horrible impressions. And I was convinced that two-thirds of all Texans were, were nightmares. And I didn't want to have any part of it. See, And then the Army sent me to Texas, and I thought, oh my goodness. And then I found out that the two were a poor representation of the overall uh, population base. But what if... Now, when we have human beings saying what if, here's what's important now. If we have human beings talking about what if, the, the reality is we don't know. We don't have omniscience to know. All right? We don't have omniscience to know what we would have ended up doing or where we would have ended up going. We could think we know, but we don't know because a hundred other things can come up in between. But see, here's the difference. God, when he gives the would haves and could've's and should should'ves, That is with an absolute certainty of his omniscience and his foreknowledge. He knows certainly for a truth that Tyre and Sidon would have repented. Or that Sodom would have repented and remained in existence an additional 2,000 years beyond that. All right. So that is an, an, a perfect, omniscient, foreknowledge consideration of the what-ifs. And that is extraordinary. That is so beyond the human experience that we have to comment on it. We have to take um, full awareness of it. Again, I'll just refer you to Matthew 11. Let me grab it real quickly here. Matthew 11, 21-23. through 23. By the way, we have to put up with just a slight amount of flickering. I think for the next two weeks until the Dell is sending me a new video card for the laptop. This will be my fourth video card and third motherboard, um, but they're on back order at the moment, so we won't get them till about the 13th or so. All right, Matthew chapter 11. Again, woe to you, Corazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. To me, the most significant one, though, is with Sodom in verse 23 of Matthew 11. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. And then it goes on. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. To this day. Now, Jesus is speaking here 2,000 years after the destruction of Sodom. So not only does he know the response at the time, what the response would have been... 2,000 years ago, but he also knows what the continued positive volition and history of Sodom would be. He knows the history of Sodom from 2000 B.C. to 32 A.D. You say, well, Sodom doesn't have a history between 2000 B.C. and 32 A.D. Well, it would have had a history for millennia with kings and and. You know, the ebb and flow of history, the rising and falling of city fortunes and all the rest of that. But Sodom would have been an existent city, an extant city in 32 AD when Jesus Christ spoke that message. If the Capernaum miracles would have been done by Abraham or Lot or uh, a prophet of that generation. see. So that's a what if that spans 2,000 years after the event uh, the, the, the fork in the road, as we say. So that's how we understand the aspect of omniscience and foreknowledge. That it's not just... God does not only know the next thousand years of human history, but He knows every conceivable thousand-year future based on every conceivable choice that's made. How's that for amazing? How's that for impressive? He knows everything in every alternative, every uh, reality... And every potentiality. He knows them all. So, how then do we relate what God knows, since he knows all the outcomes, how do we relate what he knows with what he holds us accountable for? Because if he knows what our choice is going to be, why are we still accountable? This is a big question that folks ask sometimes. I think sometimes they ask it in a dismissive way. Because mm, there's a human tendency to not want to be responsible anyway, right? That's just, uh, I mean, that goes back to the fall. I mean, the very first condition of fallen man is denial of responsibility. It's the serpent's fault. It's the woman's fault. And so I think that sometimes human beings try to reconcile sovereignty with free will, and they do so in such a way as to... uh, remove their own accountability and so then there is no accountability because everything is just sovereignty playing out all right some sub points here under this we know because it's a principle of scripture that accountability increases when revelation increases accountability increases when revelation increases and there are just too many scriptures for me to give you any. You could probably give me some here this morning. But uh, to whom much is given, much shall be required. So understand that to the proportion of what is you are blessed with is the proportion to which you are accountable. Understand that things written in earlier times are written for instruction. So that we, uh, we are accountable uh, to uh, learn from the mistakes of the uh, Old Testament saints as recorded for us in the Old and New Testament. Accountability increases when revelation increases. We even have it here. Let me get back to Luke. You notice in verse 14, it will be more tolerable in the judgment. More tolerable in the judgment. Try to imagine. All these unbelievers are standing at the great white throne. And all these unbelievers are going to go to the lake of fire. And if you think that the lake of fire is equality, then your thinking is at odds with this verse. Because this verse shows that the Gentile unbelievers of Tyre and Sidon will be more tolerable than the Jewish unbelievers of Chorazin and Bethsaida. More tolerable. The language is more tolerable. Now do I understand that completely? No. I just read it for what it says. That there are if, if we can think of the lake of fire, it is eternal, unending, infinite punishment, away from the light of God's grace, away from His away from any common grace blessings. It is eternal torment. It is eternal burning. Uh burning in darkness, it's a dark fire. Um but it's not equal. It's not equal. And in fact, as Ezekiel toured hell, he saw various layers of hell. And at the very bottom layer were the Assyrians. The Assyrians were at the very bottom layer of, uh, of hell, of Sheol, as, uh, as Ezekiel toured it. So here we find another indicator, another glimpse, that even the uh, un- there will be some, there will be more and less tolerable, As unbelievers being judged at the great white throne. Accountability increases when revelation increases. And why is it more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon? Well, because yes, they responded in negative volition. And yes, they died in unbelief. And yes, without Christ or without hope or without eternal life. However, the accountability is higher for the Jewish people who were given... The prophets they were given the scriptures and ultimately they were given the personal presence of jesus christ that's uh why their uh eternal estate will be less tolerable accountability increases when revelation increases that's a principle of scripture it's true in the church age it's true uh while we're told that um you know that those in the old testament those under law perished on the word of two or three witnesses, how much severer punishment will you and I be entitled to if we regard the blood of the covenant as unclean? Our our accountability in the church is greater than Israel's accountability. And the book of Hebrews tells us that. All right, so accountability increases when revelation increases. The second thing, though, it's kind of a corollary to that. Accountability is undiminished, un Diminished by divine foreknowledge of volitional rejection. I'm going to say that again. Write it down. Think about it. Accountability is undiminished by divine foreknowledge of volitional rejection. In other words, just because God knows that volition will be negative, doesn't lessen their accountability because God knew that Sodom and Gomorrah were going to reject uh, lot's testimony doesn't diminish their negative volition and the consequences of divine wrath because God has foreknowledge of everything every right decision every wrong decision so knowledge of a wrong his foreknowledge doesn't diminish their accountability See, D- does that work in your family if you tell your child to do something and and you're not even you're not even a prophet, you don't have foreknowledge, you're just a parent who's seen this before. And you have a strong suspicion that the child is not going to obey. Just by a look on their face or just by the way they said, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, or just by something tells you that. They're going to go off and get busy and forget or just whatever. Something tells you as a parent, you know they're not going to obey. So does that mitigate their rebellion? No, not at all. They're still accountable, rewarded for obedience, disciplined for disobedience. That's the nature of decisions and consequences. You reap what you sow. And and to think that somehow God's foreknowledge mitigates that doesn't make any sense. Because if that was the case, then there would be no punishment for anything because God knows about all rebellion. Why would there be any punishment for anything? The fact that there is punishment demonstrates that the administration of justice is not um, lessened by God's foreknowledge of the rebellion. all right So accountability is undiminished. they're just as accountable. they're just as accountable. Sodom is accountable for their rejection of Lot's testimony. And God destroyed them. Fire and brimstone wiped them out. Rescued Lot and his family, his daughters. Started to rescue his wife, but she looked back. Okay? So... We want to understand the nature of accountability. It's what God has designed in this plan, and the angels in their stewardship were accountable. Adam and Eve in their stewardship were accountable. and we remain accountable. Even as fallen creatures, we remain accountable. It's the nature of existence when God chose to create volitional beings. So we have accountability. And it's undiminished by divine foreknowledge. And so here's the key. Now, when we again, when we look at this and we read that if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented. So now we ask, well, why weren't those miracles done? See? Because God knew that. He knew that that they weren't going to repent. He also knew that if he sent those miracles, they would repent. So why did he not send prophets in there who could have done those miracles? See, I mean, could he have lifted up some prophets and sent them over there to Tyre and Son? Of course he could have. In fact, at this generation, he had Daniel, he had Ezekiel, he had uh, uh, Jeremiah, he had prophets available. Could have shipped him off there and said, hey, go preach in Tyre. Do some miracles here. But he chose not to. Why? Sovereignty. All right, now we start to see how sovereignty and volition interact. Sovereignty fixes the conditional circumstances. Sovereignty fixes the conditional circumstances. Sovereignty fixes the conditional circumstances that each city faces, each generation faces, each person faces. Your conditions, your circumstances, you are presently, right now, being tested under the conditions and circumstances that God the Father's sovereignty is determining for your life. And so you're accountable. You are accountable for the conditions God is placing you in. All right, you are accountable. Sovereignty fixes the conditional circumstances. Now, so that means if God sends the uh, miracles, you're accountable for how you respond. If God doesn't send the miracles, you're still accountable. Each human being is accountable. Each person, each city, each generation, what have you, as, as the... As the faith is being evaluated, accountability rests for the conditions you're faced with. And you can't make an excuse to say, oh, well, if I'd have been under different conditions, I would have made different choices. Can't say that. Because God didn't test you in those different conditions. He tested you in these conditions. See. as so we point out, um, and I'll pick on my son this morning. Um, He is not accountable. Uh, He's not being evaluated. He's not being judged for what kind of husband he is. Why is he not being judged for what kind of husband he is? He's not married. He's not a husband. That's right. Whereas I'm accountable. LaRosa's accountable, right? We're accountable. See, Dan, you're accountable. Because this is the condition the Lord has us in right now. Now, I'm not being tested as a uh, single man. I'm not being tested as a widower. I'm being tested as a married man. That's the condition I'm in. And so I can't uh, go whining to the judgment seat and say, well, yeah, I know I did a crummy job, but you know what? I would have done a great job as a single man. (laughs) No, it's not what you were tested as. And don't be so prideful either. You probably would have blown that too. (laughs) All right? You're accountable for what you're tested in. And you're no less accountable because you fail one condition when you would have passed another condition. Because truth is, we don't know that. God does, we don't. Did, uh, Did Sodom know under what conditions they would have passed? No. Only God knew that. Likewise, Tyre and Sidon and Capernaum, none of these cities knew the conditions in which they would pass or the conditions in which they would fail. All they knew was the conditions they were experiencing and their responsibility to be obedient to the revealed word of God. So sovereignty fixes the conditional circumstances. We then are accountable for the choices we make and the conditions we're in, where we are. That's what we're tested on. So... See, some people are really, um, I think there's a, there's a uh, not all Calvinists, but there are, there are factions of Calvinism that, that insist that uh, human volition ties God's hands. Human volition uh, prevents God from being sovereign because God's kind of stuck living with whatever choices we make. And I say, you know what, that's not true. God's not stuck. Living with whatever choices we make, because God knows the choices we make ahead of time. And if God doesn't want to be stuck in a certain outcome, then He knows what conditions will produce the other outcome. See, if God wasn't stuck pulling His hair out, right, His heavenly hair, uh, He wasn't up there in heaven saying, Oh my goodness, I had to destroy Sodom, I had plans for Sodom. I wanted Sodom to live 2,000 more years. See, so God wasn't stuck just making do, living with uh, Sodom's poor decisions, saying, oh, well, I guess I'll have to come up with something else now. wasn't stuck at all. He knew what their outcome was going to be, what their choices were going to be. And if his sovereign plan for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ demanded for Sodom's uh, recovery, then he would have sent the conditions, these miracles, the Capernaum miracles, so that they would respond in positive volition. Is this making sense? So for every decision, since he knows the outcomes, he has total control of the conditions and circumstances. Sovereignty is not God's hands aren't tied. Not at all. He's not stuck with living with whatever volition throws his way. That's the point we're trying to make. That's the point this passage makes. This passage outlines sovereignty and free will in some very powerful ways. So sovereignty fixes the conditional circumstances. And finally, hey, get to get that point again. I really put that on two slides? I did. How about that? Okay. Well, I meant to delete it off that first slide. Okay. So you get to look at it twice. Sovereignty fixes the conditional circumstances that each city, generation, or person faces. But then point D, here's the remainder of that thought. Volition generates the consequences. Volition generates the consequences. See, if sovereignty fixes the circumstances, volition generates the consequences. And even those are still uh, supplied by means of sovereignty. Volition generates the consequences that each city, generation, or person faces. You reap what you sow. Consequences of choices we make. Constantly. I used to harp on this when I worked in the jail. Constantly. It was all about decisions and consequences. And inmates, you would think, would have uh, a frame of reference to understand this. And I try to tell them, you know, you ever think about why you're here? (laughs) You know, I mean, I know why I'm here because they're paying me to do this and I'm wearing a uniform and this is where I work. But why are you here? Talking to the inmates now, right? Uh, Not because they're not paying them to do it and they do wear a uniform, but it's a jail uniform and it's not where they work. They're there as a consequence for choices that they made. And had they made different choices... They might have expected different consequences. So, uh, in any event, and then you catch them breaking rules or whatever. You bust up a, a little uh, home uh, tattooing operation. That's big. They they get good with their homemade tattoo kits and whatnot, and, uh, and, and, which is illegal, and they're not allowed to do it in, in violation of jail rules and stuff. And so you catch them. And then you confiscate the little tattoo kit and you write up the report and they're going to face uh, sanctions for uh, jail sanctions for what they've done. And then they're, they're oh, oh boss, can't you, hey, boss man, can't you just let this go? Don't report this? <laughs> well, no, you, you made decisions. You're going to face some consequences. That's what it's about. And maybe, yeah, maybe this object lesson will be beneficial for you. You'll you'll pick up on something here. You make choices, you face consequences. All right? Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I could illustrate. There was one guy I let go. (laughs) I actually let an inmate go without writing up a report for something he was doing wrong. So I cut a deal with the inmate. I said, if you teach me how you're doing this, then I won't tell my sergeant I caught you doing this. So he taught me how he how to use an electrical outlet and pencil leads in order to uh, spark a, a flame in order to light a cigarette. Saying, if you ever want to learn how to do that, I can teach you now. Just bring me a pencil, and we've got an outlet over here, and we'll... Anyway, it's a little bit of Mr. Science at, at work. But I was... Uh, I just wanted to learn. I said, how are you guys lighting your cigarettes if, if you don't have any matches? What are you doing? And, and I knew because you could see the, the, the charred, uh, the blackened uh, outlet there where they had sparked the whole thing. And, and I said, well, you know, why is this all? So, what are you doing? And so, anyway, I cut the deal with him and said, okay, if you teach me how you're doing that, then, then this won't get written up. And uh, plus, I already had the pa- The guy didn't know this either. Um, I had the paperwork already that at 6 o'clock in the next morning he was getting released. So you know you know write up wasn't going to do anything to him anyway, but he didn 't know he was getting out of jail, so he thought that a write up he could go to lock up for fifteen days or something so anyway, so we cut a deal, and he taught me a little science class on how you use a pencil and some toilet paper and you you make a flame and you light your cigarettes with an electrical outlet and um, and so I acted all kind and didn't write him up and say, he said, oh, okay, boss, you're the greatest, you're the greatest. And then five hours later, six o'clock in the morning, I called him out and said, okay, pack your stuff, you're going home. <laughs> so that yeah, was a lot of fun. All right, I'd forgotten all about that. Volition generates consequences. Volition generates the consequences that each person faces or each city or each generation or each nation faces, consequences for the choices we make. Now, we don't control the circumstances, but within the circumstances that sovereignty determines, we're accountable for the choices we make. So, we're accountable for the conditions we're in. Bob is not accountable uh, for any marital decisions he makes today. Because he's not making marital decisions. He's not in that, under that realm of testing. Okay. Okay. So this is how the sovereignty, and there's more, like I said, there's more on this. If you want to go to the website, look up the uh, episode there on uh, uh, Galilean ministry, episode number 21. Woes upon the privilege. You're going to get uh, about four or five lessons that we did on this very subject. All right. Moving on then to verses 17 and following. The 72 missed the point. The 72 missed the point. They're coming back from their travels with victory. Celebrating, rejoicing, and yet they missed the point. So point three in the outline. The 72 missed the point for their victories over demons. They missed the point for their victories over demons. We want to make sure as we're fully engaged in the angelic conflict, and by the way, we're more engaged than they were in their stewardship. It may not be as obvious to us, but that's probably because we're not thinking in the angelic terms we should be thinking of. But they missed the point. I don't want us to miss the point when we get engaged in our angelic conflict uh, uh, skirmishes. So reading from verse 17 down through verse 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's the point. And that's where the rejoicing should take place. And so we break this down. We've got some subpoints points here. First of all. There's a difference. This is one of the differences between chapter 9 and chapter 10. Look with me here. Back in chapter 9, when he calls the 12, he called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. In other words, when he gathers them together, the first thing he tells them is, by the way, this is the authority and the power I'm giving you as you go forth. And then he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. So the first observation we make here under sub-point A is that the twelve were explicitly given authority over demons. The twelve. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, you know, the twelve. The twelve were explicitly given authority over demons. Luke 9.1. They were told up front. They were told up front. I've been giving you authority over demons. Go out there and preach the kingdom. Different from the 70 or the 72. The 70 or the 72, point B, they discovered their empowerment while they were ministering, while they were out there serving, after the fact. He didn't tell them up front. The 70 discovered their corresponding empowerment before the Lord spelled out their authority. See, they discover it in verse 17 of chapter 10. They come back rejoicing. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You didn't tell us that. Lord, you didn't tell us that. This is great. Look what we can do. And then he tells them, I was watching Satan fall. And then in verse 19, behold, I have given you authority. It's almost like an, oh, yeah, I didn't tell you. I have given you authority. They discovered it for themselves without being told. It wasn't the point for them being sent forth. And it was a minor point. Why did the Lord not tell them? Why did the Lord not tell them up front? See, the, the twelve, he told them up front. For the twelve, it was a priority. For the twelve, they are apostles. These seventy or seventy-two are disciples, but the twelve were disciples and apostles. They were the front-line soldiers in the angelic conflict. Your your uh, your uh, field-grade officers or your general-grade officers were the twelve. Your command, general staff, right there, and they were fully engaged in the angelic conflict. It was important for them to know, and it was important for them to have full command over the uh, the, the angels and demons and, and spirits that they were dealing with. With the seventy, it was not important, or he would have told them. It was not even um, a feature in the forefront of their ministry. It was almost you could think of it almost as an oh yeah. I forgot to tell you that. Oh, yeah, it wasn't really important. It wasn't a big feature of what you were supposed to be doing anyway. And so you see the difference here between being told up front versus finding out in the process of ministering and then being told afterwards, oh, yeah, by the way, I gave you that authority and power over the uh, tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Oh, yeah, by the way. Forgot to mention that. It wasn't important, see. So that's quite a difference. That's a huge distinction between the 12 and the 70. There are um, uh, some folks that, of course, don't understand the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, and they think that this text actually never happened, that it was a confusion on the uh, part of the author or the manuscripts, just kind of got stories mixed up. And so they kind of retold it a second time with, The number 70 instead of the number 12. No, they're different events for different purposes in different regions. One was Galilean towards Israel. The other one is Judean and Priyan towards Jews and Gentiles alike. This here is another distinction between the two. Now, what is this about Satan falling? Point C. Jesus Christ observed Satan falling from heaven. He says in verse 18, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I was watching. I was watching. Hmm. When was he watching? And when did the fall take place? All right, Jesus Christ observed Satan falling from heaven in a context so important, always fix the context in a context related to the mission of the 72. In other words, in a full harvest prayer context. In a context of a full harvest beseeching the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers into the harvest. Remember, in the Gospels, the harvest is the end of the age. Typically, the reapers are angels if you are beseeching the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers into the harvest. In other words, minister the gospel Proclaim the coming kingdom and endure to the end. Whereupon those who endure to the end will be saved. The uh, the workers will go into the harvest. The angels will be sent into the fields. And the chaff will be ripped out, cast into the fire. And the millennial kingdom will be unveiled. Peace on earth. All right. Can you visualize world peace? (laughs) How about angels scouring this planet, snatching forth every unbeliever? All right. So Jesus Christ observed Satan falling from heaven in a context related to the mission of the 72. Now, we have to ask ourselves, when, when was he watching? And when did Satan fall? If uh, if I just tell you that I was watching a baseball game. Well, when was that? (laughs) <laughs> I didn't say, did I? I just said I was watching it. I was watching a baseball game that, uh, that went 19 innings. Okay. Well, it turns out it wasn't last night. It wasn't any time recently. In fact, it was years ago. It was, it was uh, the very first night I ever met uh, uh, Byron, my, my sister's husband, future husband. And it was the first night I'd ever met him. We went to a ball game together. And it turned out it went 19 innings, lasted until 1 o'clock in the morning. Bob was just a 6-year-old little kid. And uh, he was happy to be awake at 1 o'clock in the morning and having lots of fun. We kept feeding him cotton candy and soda and whatever. And he, he got pretty wired and had a lot of fun. Well, if I don't set the context, then it's left uncertain, isn't it? Jesus says, I was watching. Well, when was that? It is in relation to their ministry. It is in relation to the victory they've been having over these uh, demons, these fallen angels, these spirits, and whatever other forces. Um, the the powers of the enemy are quite varied. They include both fallen angels and demons. They also include, uh, so far as they can influence the uh, animal realm of creation and so forth. So... What's the context for this? Is it past? Is it present? And even if he was watching in the past, here's where the second ambiguity comes in. Even if he was watching in a present mode to them ministering, okay. So let's just call that let's call that the um, the event present, okay. Call that event present. It was present time during the event while the seventy were out there ministering. So he sends them forth. They go out there for a number of days, weeks, months. Weeks, less limited to a couple of weeks. They came back, and during the event present, while they were ministering, he was watching. Okay? He was watching. So it still doesn't answer the question. Because wherever he was, he was in one place watching a lot of other places. And he was watching with prophetic eyes a fall of Satan from the heavenly places. And As a recipient of a prophetic vision, was he watching the the literal present? Was he watching the past? Was he watching the future? Was he seeing in the ministry of these 72 disciples, was he seeing a foreshadowing of what's to come? These are legitimate questions, and the text itself is not going to answer it for us, at least exegetically. The language doesn't help us. So, was this a vision of the past? In other words, Satan's original fall, when you look at Ezekiel 28, 16. I've got about four minutes left, and so we're going to very rapidly run through these, and then next week we'll come back and take the time to actually walk through each of these scriptures one at a time. But when he says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning, um, was he prophetically looking back to the angelic stewardship at the fall of Satan in Ezekiel 28? Uh, he was watching His disciples having their victory. And did that give Him that vision of the fall of Satan in the past? Uh, was watching Satan fall? Or was it a vision of the present? Was He watching the fall that was associated with the crucifixion? Was He watching when He, when he saw the ministry of the 72, when He saw their power, when He saw their fruit, He saw what they were doing and He knew That the crucifixion, the imminent crucifixion, was about to disarm the rulers and the authorities, according to Colossians 2.15? Was Jesus Christ observing a vision of the present? Was he seeing the downfall of Satan that would be associated with, with Calvary? You know, you can get excited when you're seeing the Spirit move, when you're seeing fruit born, when you're seeing things happen, and you just... You have the divine viewpoint perspective to know, man, God's really working here. Was that what the Lord was seeing? Or was this a vision of the future? When when he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, was he being given a prophetic view of Revelation chapter twelve, verses seven through twelve? In other words, he saw the 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 present ministry of the seventy two. But behind that, in his prophetic vision, he saw the great tribulation. He saw the work of the 144,000. He saw Satan fall from heaven having great wrath, knowing that his time was short. Is that what he saw? There are three possibilities we can look at here, and possibly even more, but these are the three that jump out immediately, because when he says, I was watching... We don't have a specific uh, time frame that locks in. What's he talking about? And even if we can narrow down the time that he was watching, the fact that he has prophetic vision doesn't tell us that what he was seeing was present, past, or future. It could have been anything. See, you and I can see the present. We can remember the past. And I guess you can see it in your mind's eye if you're remembering the past. But can you see the future? No. He could as a prophet, as a spirit-indwelled Old Testament prophet that he was. So we'll come back next week and we'll review these passages. The Ezekiel 28 for Satan's original fall. The Colossians 2.15 for the disarming of the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And then the uh, eschatological fall whereupon he is confined to this planet. Where Satan's uh, ability to span the dimensions and actually... Uh, pierce the veil to enter into the throne room of God that access is revoked and he is bound to the earthly dimension in the uh, midway point of the great tribulation and that's going to be a feature that we'll look at there in revelation chapter 12 so we'll come back to that and then we will wrap up points four and five and uh, bring this episode to a close father father Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the truth of your word, for the privilege we have to study, to show ourselves approved. We thank you for uh, the way that your word is sufficient day by day, moment by moment. Father, for the conditions we're faced with, uh, your word is sufficient. and I thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.